Let us begin our sermon with prayer. Ever trustworthy Lord, we ask you to bless the words of our sermon that we may learn all the more to trust in you and not in human skill, power or authority. Let us learn to put our hope and confidence in you when our crosses seem heavy and pushing us down. Let us always see your deliverance and salvation that we may evermore praise you, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Our text for our sermon is Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will make music to my God as long as I exist. Do not trust in human helpers, in a mortal man who cannot save you. His spirit departs. He returns to the ground he came from. On that day, his plans have perished. Blessed is everyone who has the God of Jacob as his help. His hope is in the Lord his God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything which is in them. He is the one who stays faithful forever. He obtains justice for the oppressed. He gives food to the hungry. The Lord releases prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the aliens. The fatherless and the widow he sustains, but he turns aside the way of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, rules for all generations. Praise the Lord. This is the word of our Lord. In Amos chapter 6, our first lesson, we hear that the, the wealthy in Israel, they weren't concerned about how the religion, uh, the true worship of God was being destroyed. They were happy to eat, drink, and be merry, lavish in their riches. Truly, who was being praised by their lifestyle? Mammon, material possessions and the money that buys them. And in our gospel lesson in Luke chapter 16, when we hear about the rich man and poor Lazarus, who was the rich man's God? It wasn't the Lord. It was mammon, money and the material possessions it buys. Now, Lazarus did not go to heaven because he was poor. But it seems, doesn't it, that in his life, it seems like God hated Lazarus. He had it pretty hard. It wasn't his poorness that saved him. Rather, God, in his wisdom, kept him from letting these things become his God. What saved him was Jesus Christ. Lazarus would certainly praise the Lord as his own suffering did in his life in heaven forever. But then we turn around and have a problem because how does our society view praising God in heaven? Well, they view us as these naked babies with wings playing harps and sitting there going, Oh, I praise you, Lord. And ten minutes into eternity, we're going to say, All right, enough of that. That's boring. Unless you understand the real reasons why we praise the Lord and what praise for the Lord is. Today in our sermon text, we will ask, what do you think about praising God? And the psalmist begins basically with the invitation and command for everyone. Praise the Lord. And the name he uses for Lord is the name that God uses to emphasize his absolute faithfulness. He's absolutely faithful to his covenants. And there's the hint of why we praise the Lord. He's absolutely faithful to his law, but he's absolutely faithful to his promise that whoever believes in Jesus as their savior shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so the psalmist suddenly, who's pointing the finger at you and I of saying, praise the Lord. He suddenly looks at the three fingers pointing back at him and says, oh, my soul, praise the Lord. And it's interesting by saying, oh, my soul, recall, Adam didn't have a soul until God breathed one into him. Oh, my whole being, praise the Lord. 
You don't have to be at church 24 hours a day, seven days a week to praise the Lord. You praise the Lord as mother and father, son and daughter. You praise the Lord as secretaries and plumbers and and whatever your vocations and, and your callings are in life. You praise the Lord because you know Jesus is your Savior and the Holy Spirit is in your heart. So your new man permeates everything you do. And so the psalmist says in verse 2, I will continue praising the Lord throughout my lifetime. And here we are gathered. One of the reasons why we gather to worship the Lord is to praise Him. Throughout their lifetime, I've already covered you do this in your careers and in your vocations, but then he adds, I will continue singing praises for my God throughout my existence. Now, you are eternally alive in Christ. So you could paraphrase this as, I will continue singing praises for my God forever. What do you think about praising God? Do you rejoice in doing it for all eternity? If you think heaven is going to be you're a naked baby uh, with angels' wings playing a harp and that's going to be boring, you've totally misunderstood it. Why do we praise the Lord now? Because He saved us. Because He's given us eternal life. But you know, if I were to knock on your door and say, you know, I hear you're having some financial struggles and I hear you're concerned about your neighbor's crosses and, and, some, and a little bit of uh, finance would help them as well. Here's a million dollars. Would you grab the money, slam the door on my face and say, get lost, thanks for the money? Or would you be like, wow! Oh, man! Boy, I can give some of this to my Lord in thanks. I can help that one neighbor who's, who's having some medical problems and can't pay their bills. Wouldn't you be grateful? Well, let me tell you, when we are in heaven, it is paradise. And when you are in as good as it can get, it's so good you can't even imagine it, you'll be thinking every second of every hour of every day, wow, this is amazing. Your praise for the Lord is not going to be like a mechanical or, or a robot that has no free, oh, praise the Lord. It's going to be, wow, awesome stuff, Lord. In a million years from now, you're still going to be like, wow. See, we praise the Lord because He saved us. And we will praise the Lord in all eternity because we are in paradise and we are before our loving, wonderful God. What do you think of praising the Lord? Do you rejoice in doing it for all eternity? Because if you do, you truly understand what you've been saved from and what you're going to get, even though you can't imagine it. But then suddenly the psalmist turns. He gives us a very stern warning. Do not set your confidence in benefactors, in the sons of man in whom there is no salvation. Now that Hebrew word that I translate as benefactors, it is hard to translate today because if you lived in ancient Israel at the time, there usually was would be the equivalent of like a governor or maybe King David, for example, where if hard times came upon you, if there was drought or plague, these were the people, your kinsman, redeemer, that you would turn to. And lots of times if the Assyrians or the Babylonians were at the gate, it was this person you turned to who had the military might to protect you. There are many ways in which we can forget to praise the Lord and put our confidence and our trust and our praise in mere mortals. For example, when we're told that we have a scary medical problem, one that can have a lot of consequences and maybe threatening our lives, we're told the good news is the surgeon we got for you is one of the best in the region. 
Now, certainly in good stewardship, if somebody told you that surgeon's awful and most of the people don't survive his surgeries, you would be a lousy steward to go to that person, right? But do we put our confidence in the skill of the surgeon's hands or in God who uses that surgeon as his instrument to deliver you? Because one is putting the praise in a sinful man. The other is seeing that man as God's instrument and putting the praise in God. Now, Christians have a way, whether they're of one political party or the other, of putting their praise in mortal man in government. Remember this word originally included with it like nobility who had the power to use their political positions to benefit you. Now on one end of the spectrum, we have those Christians who they don't really believe the word of God is inspired. And they view government as something in which if they can get a utopian society usually that's socialism or communism, if they can get the right laws passed, then even though Jesus says there'll be wars and rumors of wars right up until his return, if we can get the right utopian society through government established, we'll have peace on earth, and this is what God means by heaven, and all will be fine. That's trusting in mortal men. Every four years, we re-elect our government. So that can fall apart on us quickly. On the other side, these are Christians who tend to hold the word of God as being inspired, but they get confused and they think that your morality saves you instead of if you're saved, it w- your new man will reflect that in a Christian morality. And they think if they can get the right laws passed, the right moral laws, then our nation will become a godly nation and more people will convert to Christianity. That falls short of how God does convert us. The Holy Spirit uses the means of grace, the word, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Once again, they're putting their confidence in men. And we've seen in history, time and time again, government will let you down. And so we're warned in verse 4, if we're going to trust in a man, if that's what we're going to praise, we're told his spirit will depart from him. He will turn to the soil he was made from. Now, on that very day, his plans will perish. Even parents who love their children and set up IRAs and things like that where the children can receive interest after they're gone. Well, what happens if we get invaded by a foreign country? What happens when the stock market crashes? Even the best laid plans, they fall apart. And there's one other way here I want to point out in which we can give praise to mortal men. This verse makes it very clear. When they die, their spirit departs from them. Their body returns to the soil. And on that day, his plans perish. They're done. They're either in heaven or hell, period. Because today, we tend to want to believe in ghosts. This is the devil's great trick. And and, and Christians foolishly think, you know, old Uncle Buck who always had a cigar and a glass of whiskey, that Henri uncle, the favorite uncle, well, he's there sitting in the passenger side of the car and he's my co-pilot. And he's there if I'm driving home and I slide on a patch of ice, his soul will grab that steering wheel and help me. Or as some of the country music songs sing about, if the car's in a rollover, he'll pull me out before the gas tank explodes. No. Scripture makes it clear. Our spirit goes to God. He judges it. It goes to heaven or hell. Anybody who wants to believe that ghosts haunt us and help us, even as benefactors, does so contrary to what Scripture teaches. So what do you think about praising God? Do you rejoice in the efforts of people? You rejoice in the efforts of one man, God who became a man, 
And you can see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit working through people who may mean very well or may mean against us, but God's going to use it for our good. He works through them. They're just His instruments. So you ultimately thank the Lord for giving them the gifts, but you thank the Lord because He's the one behind it all. And we praise the Lord when we do so. So then the psalmist continues in verse 5, In a state of blessedness is the one who has the God of Jacob as his help. His hope is upon the Lord his God who made the heavens, the earth, all the seas, and everything in them. Why, if we're talking about praising the Lord, do we suddenly launch into God made everything? Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, if God made everything, guess what? He, He's in control of everything. Now let's take a look at Jacob, who God renamed Israel, wrestles with God. Oh, God had made it clear to both Isaac and his wife, Jacob's mother, that Jacob was the one, not Esau, who was to get the blessing. And the blessing was the Savior would be his descendant. But every one of them interfered with the schemes of the Lord. And Jacob himself, with his mother's guidance, tries to deceive Isaac, who's interfering with the will of the Lord and wants to give Esau the blessing. And what happens to Jacob? Well, he ends up running for his life. That didn't work out so good for him. It seems like God hates him, doesn't it? And then Jacob meets somebody that he falls in love with and and. And he makes out a deal with his uncle, Laban, who would be his father-in-law. I'll work seven years for my bride. And he does, and his uncle Laban swaps it around, and he gets Rebekah's older sister, right? And then what happens? He works seven more years. And then then his father-in-law just continually changes the deal. Even though God blesses him, it seems like Laban is, is right there to screw it up. But finally, in God's timing... Jacob is allowed to return home. And the night that he crosses into Israel, what we and I would know as Israel, what happens? The Lord shows up and and Jacob wrestles with God. I won't let you go unless you give me a blessing. And God could have gone, poof! No, that's not going to happen. God wrestled with him all night. See, brothers and sisters in Christ, God is in control and he often allows us struggle. He allows crosses upon us, but he's in control. He has a plan. There's a reason for it. I often stand back and marvel that some of the things that I have to do without in life, it's actually my loving God saying, yeah, Fred, your life would be easier if I gave you a bigger paycheck, but you know what? It would quickly become your God. And so we ask that question. What do you think about praising God? Do you rejoice that God can control what he made? Certainly he became part of this creation to save us. And we recognize as he promises throughout scripture that he does control what he made, even though he does it behind the scenes to bring you to and keep you in your salvation. Now, you've often heard me say that Hebrew poetry often has the characteristic that it crescendos to a a main verse and decrescendos from it. And that main verse is driving home a point. That verse is the second half of verse six. The Lord who keeps truth forever. The Lord, that's that covenant name that God's absolutely faithful. He keeps truth forever. Do you rejoice that the Lord never lies? See, when Jesus appeared before Pilate and Jesus said, I'm the truth, what did Pilate say? What is truth? And how would we answer that today? You know, after the Reformation, when we entered into the Enlightenment, we would say the scientific method is truth. And the scientific method is very helpful. I'm a big fan of it, brothers and sisters in Christ. But you know what? There's things that contradict the scientific method. Things like miracles. See, God created the principles of science that we're able to discover using the scientific method, but God's above that. God never lies. Today, we would ask what is truth, and people would say, what's true for you may not be true to me, because truth is how you view it. But God is stable. 
And it's a comfort for us that God never lies. This means that when he says that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. This means when you were baptized and he sealed his name on you and put his, sealed his Holy Spirit in your heart, this means he meant his promise. Unless you stop believing, and even to do that, you're going to have to fight really hard for a long time. He's going to keep his truth. He's not going to turn around and say tomorrow, ah, you know what, this whole, uh, my son's your righteousness, it's not working out. Let's, let's change this to everybody who's over six foot five has red hair and a wart on their nose is saved. God never lies. We rejoice. Thank you, Lord, for the truth. You have recorded your truth in the word. When something contradicts your word, it is that thing that's wrong, not your word. And I can bank on it with 100% confidence. And so we're told in verse 7, he's the one who makes justice for the oppressed, who gives bread to the hungry. It's the Lord who causes the event of those who are bound springing free. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, oftentimes we see people oppressed in this life by cruel oppressors. Amos talked about that with the rich who were busy lavishing themselves and not caring about the truth of the word of God. But God is ruling. And one way or the other, those who are oppressed, God sees to it that the oppressor gets their comeuppance. God sees to it that there is justice. And he gives bread to the hungry. Certainly he feeds us. Now, brothers and sisters in Christ, there's something else here to be understood, though. See, when the devil tempted Adam and Eve and they fell into sin, they begat children in their image, a sinful image, with original sin. Left to our own, we are oppressed by the devil's injustice who has just one desire, to destroy God's creation. And yet God, by going to that cross, used that cross like a sledgehammer to break the shackles of your oppression. And that's where it talks about it's the Lord who causes the events of those who are bound springing free. We often translate that as he sets the prisoners free. But we forget today the people who ended up in prison and he certainly sets them free too by giving them faith in that. But in the times that this psalm was written, if you were a rapist or a murderer, you usually were put to death. What's primary talk about those who were bound are guys like Daniel who was hauled off into exile. Guys who were thrown into prison because they owed a debt. And in prison, there's no way they were going to pay it back. But he certainly freed you because you and I were bound to sin, death, and the devil. And he's given us eternal life. And he is the bread of life who feeds us with his eternal life-giving word. It's the Lord who opens the eyes of the blind, who rise up those who are being bent down. Being bent down is having a load that oppresses us blind. We certainly saw Jesus heal blind people in, in the Gospels. However, think about this as well. You and I are blind until he sends his Holy Spirit into our heart through the means of grace that we actually believe that he's our savior. He opens up our eyes so that we see the light. And you and I are bent down with guilt once we see our sin. And yet, his blood washes that load off. He carried that load for us. And so we're told it's the Lord who loves the righteous. Now, here's the amazing thing. Jesus Christ is the only righteous man there's ever been in and of himself. But God, because he loves you, gave you the faith that gives you Christ's righteousness. And now he loves you as your father because when he looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. It's the Lord who watches over foreigners and he sustains the fatherless and the widow and he bends the path of the wicked. Have you ever been a stranger in a strange land? You don't speak the language, you don't dress the way they do. 
Well, brothers and sisters in Christ, even in those cases, God is looking out for you. No matter where you go, God is with you. But stop and think about this. We are strangers here now. This world is foreign to us. We are always going to stand out because our true home is the invisible church. Heaven is our home. And certainly in the time this psalm was written, the fatherless, there's nobody to provide for them. The widow, if her children are not mature men, there's nobody to work the farm and bring home the the bread that's needed. But God still would look over them. Look at the book of Ruth, through which he would preserve the line of the Savior. So we're told he bends the path of the wicked. And I think that is such an amazing thing. Let me give you an example of how God bends the path of the wicked. The Sanhedrin said, this Jesus is truly from God, but he's really threatening our cush positions. So let's murder him. The devil said, this Jesus is true God become true man, and he's going to defeat me. I got to get him out of the picture and even found a willing heart in Judas who was willing to betray him. and And he took over that heart. But God took their plan and he bent it. Even those on the Sanhedrin, because of Christ crucified, because of their murder sect, if they trusted in Jesus, they would be saved. And the devil who plotted to get the Lord out of the way, this is the way in which the devil was chained. We know he'll be released for a short period of time right before Christ returns, but the devil has already lost the war, brothers and sisters in Christ. It's done for. Christ on the cross ended all that. So here we've seen temporal and eternal blessings. So we ask, do you rejoice in his temporal and eternal deliverance? And the answer is when the word of God shows it to us, we go, wow, Lord. Even if we're living the life of Lazarus, I thank you, Lord, because things, hardships in this life are meant to serve my eternal good and you work for them. And so verse 10 says the Lord rules forever. The Lord rules over all creation for you. The devil is never going to get a sucker punch in on on God and suddenly win the war. Some people think that because they misunderstand. They think there's a great battle. Ooh, they get worried. What happens? What happens if the devil wins? Not going to happen. The great battle was on the cross in, in Christ's empty tomb. The Lord reigns forever, and that means he's ruling forever now. And even thousands of years into all eternity, the devil's not going to escape from hell and suddenly ruin everything for us. Do you rejoice that the Lord is always ruling? So we're told, Zion, praise your God generation after generation. Zion was the mount where the temple was built. That's where God promised to dwell. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is really referring to the invisible church of all believers where God rules in our heart. And as each generation shares that, the next generation has God ruling in their heart as well. And we will praise him generation after generation and then we'll praise him for all eternity. And so do you rejoice in his eternal reign? Certainly, because that's the security of your salvation. So as the psalmist began this psalm, so he ends. Praise the Lord. What do you think about praising God? You rejoice in doing it for all eternity because you're being given something so wonderful you can't even imagine it and you have something now. So we don't rejoice in the efforts of people. We rejoice in God who is working behind the scenes and that God's in control. We rejoice that He's in control of what He made and so we know He's in control of our lives and therefore we can rejoice in the temporal and eternal deliverance He gives us in this life and the next and so we rejoice because He rules forever. No Nobody's going to take those things from us. Amen. Trust not in princes that are but mortal. Earthborn they are and soon decay. Vain are their counsels at life's last portal when the dark grave will claim its prey. Since then no one can help afford. Trust only Christ our God and Lord. Alleluia, alleluia.